Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 842 of the Juicebox podcast. In March of 2021, on episode 452, I had an enlightening conversation with Francisco Leone, who's a doctor, a PhD, and the CSO and co-founder of Prevention Bio. At that time, we were talking about the teplizumab trial. That trial must have gone okay because the FDA approved the drug, which is now called T-Zealed. And that brings us to today's episode with Lenny Ramos. Lenny is the Chief Medical Officer of Prevention Bio, and she's here today to talk about T-Zealed. You're going to love this conversation, I promise. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your medical plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you are inspired to help with type 1 diabetes research today, you can do so by helping T1D Exchange. Go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox, join the registry, and fill out their survey. There is a lot to be excited about in this episode, so sit back, relax, and settle in. Get those earbuds in nice and tight. Are you doing the dishes? Are you driving? What are you doing right now? If you have questions about insurance coverage for TZL, there'll be a statement at the end. I'll read you a bunch of information that will help you. That'll be at the end of the episode. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored today by Cozy Earth. Whether you're looking for sleepwear, bedding, or towels, Cozy Earth has you covered and they cover you in the softest, most comfortable material I think I've ever felt. When you make a purchase at CozyEarth.com using my coupon code JUICEBOX, you will save 35% site-wide, 35% off of everything you buy from Cozy Earth. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it later, but for now, just know this. Never, ever, ever have I slept on more comfortable or lovely sheets. CozyEarth.com. And don't forget to use the code JUICEBOX at checkout. Today's podcast is also sponsored by the insulin pump that my daughter wears, Omnipod. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Head there right now. Make no stops. Do not pass go without going to Omnipod.com forward slash juice box and getting started today with either the Omnipod 5 or the Omnipod Dash. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Hello, my name is Lenny Ramos. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Prevention Bio, and I'm very delighted to be here to speak with Scott and share um, some of our insights and response to some questions related to T-Zealed. Cool. So we're calling it T-Zealed now because it is um, FDA approved, but when it was in trial, what was it called? So during development, the, the, the medication was called teplizumab. I just wanted you to say it because I always say it wrong. That's all. Okay. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure people knew what we were talking about. Okay. Um, when, when, when you come, when do you come into the company, I guess is my question. So it's a kind of a convoluted story. I came into the company in 2017. Um, and at that time, we were a group of four people. I joined Ashley and Francisco. But you may or may not know that I have had a history with teplizumab dating back uh, in the early 2000s. Really? Mm-hmm. Where, where did you first intersect it? 
So back then I was working for a, um, a group called the Immune Tolerance Network. Uh, it was based out of UCSF in, in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And I worked under the direction of, uh, Jeff Bluestone when he, um, set up the ITN. We call it the Immune Tolerance Network ITN at UCSF. And, uh, one of the products that, uh, was being investigated in, in this, uh, group is Teplizumab. For, was it being investigated back then for the reasons that it came to market? Indeed. Yes. So at that point, uh, I think these, probably the second clinical trial in type 1 diabetes was uh, initiated with the Immune Tolerance Network after it showed, you know, promising evidence uh, from an earlier study con uh, conducted by Kevin Harold. And of course, um, mouse studies prior to that indicated that, that there was quite a, a promising activity in type 1 diabetes. As you know, the drug was developed with something else before type 1 diabetes, but but we'll keep going if we want to keep it going in that direction. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So from a layman's perspective, I think of the drug as, I'm going to tell you how it strikes me. You tell me if I'm right. Uh, you have... Um, we're going to need to get some screening set up so that people can get screened and get and get found out in time. And then if it seems that you're going to develop type 1 diabetes, this drug slows that process. Is that correct? So, as you know, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. So the way, and, and we're understanding about the biology of the disease, is that people who have this autoimmune disease develop autoantibodies against components of the beta cells, the pancreas, uh, the insulin-producing cells in the body. And once you develop at least two of these type 1 diabetes-related autoantibodies and abnormalities in, in the way you can control your blood sugar, we call it dysglycemia, then you may be eligible to receive uh, TZL to slow down uh, the conversion to clinical or insulin-requiring type 1 diabetes. Now, remember, of course, with a drug like TZIL, we have to be um, cognizant of the important side effects, right? Uh, and that's also noted in our label that includes, you know, cytokine release syndrome, uh, serious infections, low low blood counts, specifically what we call lymphocyte counts and less common uh, hypersensitivity or allergic reactions. But I think you have pretty much the, uh, the the big picture covered, Scott. Okay. So I've been seeing it spoken about lately in ways that I, I didn't previously think about the onset of diabetes as being in stages. Can you describe the stages to me? Yes. So I think we're learning more and more about the disease, and it's a continuum. Right, because you you have a set amount of beta cells in the pancreas, and over time, you lose the ability to to produce what we call um, uh, endogenous insulin. And so there are three stages, uh, as it's been characterized. Stage one, where you have the development of two autoantibodies, but you have perfect control of your glucose. And then the next stage, stage two, is you are continue to have at least two of these autoantibodies, but then you have the inability to, or people have the inability to control their blood sugars, we call dysglycemia. 
but they still don't need insulin. The first two stages do not need exogenous or, you know, uh, supplemental insulin. But then when you get to stage three, this is what we call overt hyperglycemia, is when there's not enough um, beta cells or functioning beta cells left in the body. And so you need uh, some supplemental or or exogenous um, insulin. Those are the three stages. But they are, you know, it's a continuum, right? Because uh, whereas we say there are different stages uh, in different people, these stages may, may be different uh, in terms of the amount of, of, of beta cells remaining in the body. Is it appropriate to get the, the drug in any stage? So the current indication, the one we got approved for, is for this, for stage two, meaning you have at least two autoantibodies and you have evidence of dysglycemia. Mm-hmm. You may be aware that we are conducting a study in stage three, newly diagnosed uh, within six weeks patients. Uh, and these people are in a trial called the PROTECT study. And we hope to have a readout on that study in the second half of this year. Wow. Uh, and still, no matter when you're jumping into it, the hope is to slow things. So not to stop or ha- has there is there anybody who's still on it who's never developed type one? So the the data that, that I can share with you is what's in our, our label. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the people who got the plizumab or T-Zild, um, in peop- these are individuals with stage 2 T1D, had a delay in their onset of type 1 diabetes compared to people who did not get it of 25 months. Now, as you might imagine, we and others are very interested in figuring out in the future, you know, who are, are doing better um, with the treatment. Uh, and that is, we don't, we don't have quite uh, the data available to tell you who those individuals are, but we are very keen on understanding who these individuals are. And, and the other thing that we might uh, consider doing in the future is, is additional dosing. Um, that, um, you know, we've been asked by, by some folks whether that might, uh, help in the future. We don't have any data on additional doses, but it's clearly something that we would be interested in, in pursuing in the future. This is off topic, but I've just had a brilliant marketing idea. You guys need to get a, um, a, a T-Rex, a dinosaur and give it a shield. And that shield would be the T-Zield. <laughs> I'm just saying, I feel, and that's a free, that's a free idea, uh, I think you hit the, the nail on the <laughs> yeah. head with respect to how, what we're thinking about as, as a shield, the T cells. Yeah, I don't think you need to. Um, I don't, you know, I don't need anything back from this. Just send me a sweatshirt when okay. they get made. Okay, that, that's a great idea. <laughs> okay, Kalen, we'll take note. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so I, I guess I want to understand right now, like real time, how are you finding people who are eligible like because i imagine people can walk around in stage one and stage two and not know it right yeah i think you've hit a a really really important question and and i i'd really like for us to talk about the idea of screening because that is how we're going to to find patients right um so in in the context of screening now you know you probably know a lot about this it's evolving Screening, even before T-cell was available, screening is important because, number one, it prevents um, the onset of, it doesn't prevent it, but you can avoid the onset of diabetic ketoacidosis. You know that's a very life-threatening condition. 
Secondly, if if you if you know you're at risk, then you can help prepare and plan for transitioning to to insulin use in the future. Mm-hmm. Third, how are we able to do the TN10 study? That is the basis of the um, the of the of the approval. It's because we were able to find patients who participated in in um, in studies, right? In TrialNet, for example, they have been being followed in TrialNet. And they were able to join the study. And, you know, as you know, this resulted in the trial results. And then finally, now that we have uh, TZILG, you know, we can intervene uh, in this disease. And it's not just us. It's the beginning of other treatments that could help uh, patients with stage 2 disease. Now, how, how are we going to find patients? Well, like TrialNet and how the study was enrolled in TN10, the, the lowest hanging fruit are the people who have relatives with type 1 diabetes because people, uh, such individuals, have a 15-fold increased risk of developing type 1 diabetes. So, you know, as you might imagine, the people who are going to be the early, um, uh, the people who we can prescribe the drug to are probably relatives of people with type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whoever is interested should probably be thinking seriously whether they should have... Um, uh, the autoantibody testing, but they only represent 15% of the population. The other 85% are the general population. And so how are we going to find them? There's a lot of thinking going on driven by, by uh, diabetes associations. For example, I can, I can mention that the ISPAD, the International Society of Pediatric and Adolescent Diabetes, have within their guidelines um, you know, these are evolving again, that people, for example, um, uh, who are um, at age two and age six are ideal times where you should be testing for autoantibody because they provide um, the best um, predictive value in, in a, a public health setting. Really? Um, yes. Or, or the other thing is you do a risk-based uh, approach, which means that there are people in whom you understand that they're they have a genetic risk, and then you are kind of enhancing your screening to those individuals. But all of, all of this is evolving, and right now, the uh, we think that probably the most likely initial uh, candidates for the drug are going to be relatives of people with type one diabetes. But it's all about education, Scott. It, not just education because of us, because education because of the three reasons why we should be trying to find these patients. Right. There are a lot of benefits uh, for for identifying these patients early, and then we have to find a way to be able to transition this to a general population screening because the vast majority of the people who are stage two are out there and they don't know about it, right. as you already alluded to. No, yeah, I I mean, I find myself saying this a lot. My daughter Arden began wearing the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump on February 4th, 2009. That was 5,093 days ago. Or another way to think of it, 1,697 pods ago. At that time, she was four years old. Hang out with me for a moment while I tell you more about the Omnipod. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. Today, Arden is 18 and still wearing Omnipod. Back then, there was one choice, just one pod. But today, you have a decision to make. Do you want the Omnipod 5, the first and only tubeless automated insulin delivery system to integrate with the Dexcom G6? Because if you do, 
It's available right now for people with type 1 diabetes ages 2 years and older. The Omnipod 5 is an algorithm-based pump that features smart adjust technology. That means that the Omnipod 5 is adjusting insulin delivery based on your customized target glucose. That's helping you to protect against high and low blood sugars both day and night automatically. Both the Omnipod 5 and the Omnipod Dash are waterproof. You can wear them while you're playing sports, swimming, in the shower, the bathtub, anywhere really. That kind of freedom coupled with tubeless, a tubeless pump. You understand it's not connected to anything. The controller is not connected to the pod. The pod is not connected to anything. You're wearing it on the body tubelessly. No tubing to get caught on doorknobs or anywhere else that tubing with those other insulin pumps can get caught. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. That's where you go to find out more. You may be eligible for a free 30-day trial of the Omnipod Dash. You should check that out too when you get to my link. Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. So if you're looking for an insulin pump that is tubeless, waterproof, and automated, you're looking for the Omnipod 5. If you want to do it on your own and you're not looking for the automation, Omnipod Dash. For full safety, risk information, and free trial terms and conditions, please also visit Omnipod.com forward slash juice box. I'm sleeping on sheets right now, this night. When I'm done here, I'm going to take a shower and go to bed. And when I do that, I'm going to be crawling into bed and sleeping on sheets made by a company that has been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years running. That's right. These sheets are made by Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth offers bedding, loungewear, towels. They have what you want. There's a Valentine's Day snuggle up coming up. What is this? We going to snuggle up for Valentine's Day on some Cozy Earth sheets and accessories? What a great idea. You can snuggle up this Valentine's Day in Cozy Earth's best-selling bamboo sheets. They're a great gift for yourself or for a loved one. But while you're on the website, check out the pajamas and the towels and everything else. CozyEarth.com. Now, why am I telling you about this? Well, I mean, it's an ad. But because there's also a code at checkout that you can use to save 35% on your order. What? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's that Scooby-Doo sound? Right? 35% at CozyEarth.com just by using the code JUICEBOX at checkout. This can't even be true, can it? Well, it is. Go check it out. All their products come with a 10-year warranty, and their bedding is temperature regulating and is available in viscose bamboo and in linen. I have the bamboo stuff. So head on over to CozyEarth.com and use my code at checkout, JUICEBOX, to save 35%. There are links in the show notes of the podcast player you're listening in now and links at juiceboxpodcast.com to Cozy Earth, Omnipod, and all of the sponsors. I tell you this because when you use my links or my codes, you're supporting the show and helping to keep it free for everyone. I appreciate it when you click. I do work with uh, T1D Exchange, and it is incredibly difficult to get people to do something even when it takes almost no time and it's only beneficial. And I, I just, as you talk about the importance of screening, all I can think is how do you get somebody to do this thing? You, you know, um, is it, is it as easy, is it as, do you go the direction of trying to get 
like the pediatric societies to just add it to testing um, that they suggest to people? Do you direct mail to people? Do you like, how do you get someone to know about a thing that they might not even know about? Do you have ideas so far? Well, probably a simple thing to do now, if you have, first of all, probably the people who would be the, interested at, at this moment to do that are people with relatives who have type 1 diabetes, right? Mm -hmm. So how how do you kind of even think about screening? There are, There's TrialNet uh, that can be contacted. There is, uh, through the JDRF, uh, the T1 Detect, where you could ask for a, a uh, test to be sent at home, and you can do the the finger prick at home and you send the, the test back and they can do the initial screening. And, and if it turns out to be something that you need to follow up, you are recommended to follow up uh, with, with uh, your physician. So, you know, it, but there has to be a little bit of motivation to do this. Right. Um, and so if you are a family member, you would hope um, that because you have a 15 fold increase first that you, you should um, be, you should, really um figure out if you or anybody else in your family has it yeah well now, now for general population I'm, I'm sorry so general population is going to be a bit uh a, more of a challenge i think but it's all about education and you know i i'm hoping that even if you were to you know it'd be in a room of a hundred and you get two people to do it and they and they spread the word and hopefully some of that it's going to be infectious and keep going, mm -hmm. and and we get this to be to be, to be more um, widespread. The issue with the, the pediat pediatrician adding this to their you know kind of um, battery of tests to do is we're not we're not there yet. I I really do think that the diabetes focused association will have to really make make a um, this you know the identify the path to doing this, agree upon the actual uh, guideline, and then hopefully um, it will, you know, it will be um, uh, discussed with, with the general pedi pediatric uh, physicians, right. and that's how it's going to happen, I think. Okay. So when we find this person that, that gets screened, can you walk me through the whole process? So the screening is just like you just said, a finger prick, you could do it at home, or you could probably have it done at a lab, I would I would imagine. But then, what's next? They find the antibodies, and then, how does the whole right. process kind of ramp? Of course, up? I think the best thing to do is is to you know speak speak with your doctor. But if you look at some of the guidelines that are starting to be you know developed, um, if you are a, if you're that's, that's divided into categories. If you if you have a family member who has type one diabetes, and you uh, got a result that was positive. You know, you probably will have to undergo a a kind of more of a um, uh, regular screening, if you would. Now, what's regular screening? Some would say it could be as often as three months, could be annually, and it depends on what stage you are. If you're in stage one or stage two, and again, this is something that that uh, between the the patient and the doctor to decide the, the cadence by which um, you know the the monitoring should be done. Now, if you were in the general population, uh, depending on your age, because the younger you are, the, you know, people, diabetes is a disease of, of younger people. Again, the frequency of testing or retesting is going to depend upon, upon a number of factors. Um, so 
you know, I can't, I can't give you the formula for every individual, but you do um, should speak with your endocrinologist if you have access, or at least a general pediatrician who can refer you to to a, an endocrinologist to understand the risks. I hope that helps a little bit. It does. Do you? Are we at a point where this is also new? Could I run into a situation where my endo just doesn't even know what I'm talking about yet? It's very possible because I think things are evolving. Um, even the concept of staging for some uh, people is still uh, novel. Mm-hmm. And so in starting with you and your group and your um, audience, you know, it's, it's things like this that's going to be the nidus that will help us teach people um, all across from patients to parents to clinicians to endocrinologists to general, you know, doctors. Right. Well, um, okay. So at the moment, is this a thing that, that my insurance would cover? Would I be paying cash for this or how is that part handled? Hey everybody, this is Scott. I'm editing the show right now. And, uh, this thing happened. I asked that last question and I was asking an insurance question, but I wasn't very clear. And I realized later that Lenny answered a different question but I wanted to get you an answer about the insurance stuff. So I reached out to Prevention. They sent me a statement, and I'm going to read it for you right now, and then we're just going to pick right back up in the conversation. I have a little message here from Prevention Bio about insurance. I'm going to read it to you as they wrote it. While we are still in early stages of discussions with payers, the feedback we, Prevention, have received so far from insurers has been overwhelmingly positive. We encourage patients that have been prescribed T-Zealed who have questions about insurance coverage to call 844-778-2246 for specific questions, or you can visit tzeal.com forward slash patient dash support for more information about our patient support program and Prevention BioCompass. Prevention BioCompass is a program that helps patients that have been prescribed Tzeal gain access and provides education and resources related to TZL. This includes administration of our copay assistance program for eligible commercially insured patients. I know I just said our, but again, I'm reading it in their voice. Just remember that. Copies of our enrollment form, along with other documents and information that may be helpful to practices, such as our compass billing and coding guide, sample letter of medical necessity, and others can be found under the Patient and Practices Resource section at tzealdhcp.com. That last part was for physicians. I think we're all clear now, and let's go right back into the conversation. The other thing I, I have, I must add is I just have some feedback that um, insurers, I believe, are, are, are warming up to the idea of funding the tests. And also, as, as you may be aware, uh, we have a Compass program that is a su- support for patients, uh, insurance coverage, co- uh, copay, um, and so this is another avenue to um, to see whether um, support can be uh, can be uh, obtained in that fashion. Okay, I, I, I ask because it's my expectation that when this goes out, you're going to hear from a number of people who probably just had a child diagnosed recently, and they have other children. Or you know something along those lines, and, and people are going to be interested when they when they make their way through the process. The actual uh, introduction of the drug to you, it's done through, it's an IV infusion. Is that correct? 
the when when the patient is deemed to be stage two, uh, and their doctor prescribes the medication, um, they have access to they can access this Compass program that will help again with the insurance and the co- copay as well as you know how the infusion uh, environment um, is going to take place, mm-hmm. uh, and it is a fourteen uh, fourteen day treatment given intravenously for at least 30 minutes. 14 days in a row. That's 14. It's 14 consecutive days. Consecutive correct. days. Okay. Is there um, effort to change the delivery method or to add delivery methods, or is this the only viable way? Currently, the drug is approved for intravenous infusion. But as you may imagine, we prevention is interested in looking at other routes of, of um administration, including, you know, subcutaneously under the skin. So this is something that we will uh, hope to pursue um, in the future. But right now it is an intravenous infusion. Okay. Your background, um, I I was doing a little bit of of digging around and have you been paying attention to things uh, related to inflammation for a lot of your career? So I am a, a transplant nephrologist by training. Uh, and so I, the early part of my career has been uh, in the development of drugs that, uh, that in, it intercept the immune system uh, so that we can prevent the rejection of, of uh, organ transplants, not just kidney. I've been involved in other solid organs, including liver and heart. So um, indeed, yes, I've been involved in, uh, in immunology for, for a while. Is, I, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have type 1 and other autoimmune issues. And I always kind of come back to the idea of like inflammation seems to be at the core of so many things, even to the point where the more people I interview, the more people I meet who have type 1 diabetes, other autoimmune issues, and then things like bipolar disorder or depression or other things that seem that when you dig around online a little bit, you hear people talk about them kind of in the same breath with inflammation. And I was wondering, do we, do you, in your opinion, do we even see the big picture around how impactful inflammation is on people? Wow, that is a million dollar question. What I can say right now is that, you know, the the treatments that I've been associated, that I've been aware of, are directed against components of the immune system, whether they be T cells or B cells, and um, diseases like type one diabetes and and perhaps other autoimmune diseases could be targets of of T cell um, directed treatments. Now, whether there are relationships uh, or or or, or um, connections to other um, diseases beyond our traditional understanding of of, of uh, immune diseases is is another. Is a, is another uh, field that that I I probably am not the right person to address. I understand. I I will say obviously it's anecdotal from me, but I do this thing when I interview people. I ask about autoimmune and their extended family, and then after enough time, I started saying, "How about anybody with bipolar disorder?" And the amount of people who can find somebody in their reasonably extended family with bipolar, it, it as an example is shocking to me sometimes. Um, and it just, there people mention things over and over again that are repeating. And it's just hard to ignore when you're talking about it like that. 
I'll certainly take note of it and see, um, you know, if I can understand the connection myself. No, it's, I just wanted to bring it up. Um, okay, so I have some questions here for you. Can we kind of roll through them a little bit? Sure. Um, all right. So it, are there people who are not candidates for TZL? You know, Scott, probably the easiest thing is to say who are the candidates. Okay. So they're type 1 diabetes, stage 2 disease, and they have to be 8 years and older to be eligible for, for TZO. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it? That's our indication. All right. <laughs> um, are there any long-term repercussions from the drugs or the reasons why maybe the trade-off wouldn't be uh, valuable in some people's opinion? Well, definitely we need to be aware, and this is in our label, of um, of the warnings and precautions. And I'm going to absolutely make you aware that um, we do have um, cytokine release, serious infections, you know, this one type of uh, white blood cell called low, uh, lymphocytes are, that can be, um, that uh, could uh, be decreased with treatment, and less commonly hypersensitivity or allergic reactions. Um, common side effects are headache, rash, uh, again, low blood counts. Uh, we don't have uh, sufficient long-term follow-up, and this is why we have a commitment with the uh, FDA to do a, a, a what we call a registry where we follow patients for uh, at least 10 years. And so so we're going to build a database of um, of. Uh, uh, safe of, of these patients to see uh, long-term effects. But so far in our roughly 1,000 patient database, we have not seen any, um, uh, you know, things that uh, that we are uh, typically concerned about, like uh, malignancies uh, and so forth. And, and, and that's been um, discussed during our ADCOM as well, that, you know, but the FDA did say that uh, the follow-up uh, is still uh, kind of uh, on the short side, so we will be definitely looking at uh, longer-term follow-up. That's excellent. Um, are there any drug interactions, things that I can't be using if I'm taking the uh, infusion, and does that count just for during the infusion, or is it outside so of the typically monoclonal antibodies are so specific for their target that are that there are minimal um, kind of uh, what you would be worried about when you're taking, uh, for example, uh, pills. Uh, but the most important things that you should uh, not be um, having if you take this drug is you should, anyone who has an ongoing infection will potentially have um, an allergic reaction to some of the components if they, if, 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 uh, if that has happened in the past, of course, you have to be, be careful and, and avoid it. Okay. All right. Um, what, uh, I mean, 14 days is a lot of days. What happens if in the middle something happens and I just can't make it one day? Does that interfere or do you just skip that day and go to the next? So as per our label, um, if you miss a dose, the recommendation is to just keep going to the next day or whenever the day that, that you can resume and to finish the 14 day course. So you know, if you, you skip one day instead of, you know, 14 days, you're going to get your 14 doses over 15 days, for example. But it's it's highly recommended that uh, that the patient finish, finishes the whole 14-day okay. 14, 14 course. 
I have a question here from a listener that said uh, they're looking for guidelines about routine screening for like siblings, for example. This person said that they asked their pediatrician to test their son uh, this year for antibodies, and the pediatrician said no, they would only do a urine glucose test. Is there uh, is there guidance out there that that somebody could point their endo to? Yeah, definitely. There, the um, as, as I mentioned, the ISPAD guidelines, the International Society of Pediatric and um, and Adolescent Diabetes, who are formulating these these guidelines and. A urine glucose is a very, very insensitive way of detecting uh, a risk for type 1 diabetes. And you really have to go to uh, autoantibody testing uh, right now. That's probably the best way to start uh, identifying individuals who are in these pre-symptomatic stages of type 1 diabetes. With that autoantibody testing, is there a frequency? I mean, should I be doing it every year or... Like, Again, the, these are these guidelines are evolving. If you if you're a relative of someone with type one diabetes, your frequency may be a bit uh, um, uh, faster, right? But first, it depends. If it's negative, depending on your age, um, you know you're a certain cadence. But if you are you you already have an autoantibody, it may be uh, more frequent. I think this is the things that you have to discuss with your endo or uh, or doctor. To see how often um, these tests should be uh, should be performed. Yeah, my daughter is the one with type one. I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter mm-hmm. was diagnosed when she was two. She's eighteen now, and my son, around ten or twelve years old, was tested and had no antibodies. And I have to admit, it gives you this sense of like, oh, okay, well then that's never going to be a problem. But I don't know that that's true, and a lot of the testing sites don't want to test again if you've come back with no antibodies. So it's, it's an interesting, it's an, yeah. you get put in an interesting, there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people in this scenario, right? There's the, there's trial net, for example, and, and, you know, JDRF with their T1 detect, and then there's the company that makes the drug. And then there's the endocrinologist that hopefully will, you know, suggest this to you and help you prescribe. And there's just a lot of pieces that to me, feel like they're not connected well yet. Is there is there a, a thought in your head that there needs to be a central base that connects all these things together? Yeah, I agree with you. It seems fragmented, but, but I also look at it as an opportunity, right? We are all in the middle of this and we're going to have help create um, the future for, for um, people with um, pre-symptomatic diabetes. I think we're going to have to go and do kind of a multi-pronged approach right now, Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are, you know, TrialNet, JDRF, um, we'll, we'll have to, you know, there'll be a coalescence of, of all of us. And I think it's, I, my, my sense is it's going to be the, uh, diabetes associated societies because, you know, we want to have somebody who are leaders in our field. This is their, you know, kind of, uh, their expertise, and to really understand the evolving data, the historical data, to to really provide us some guide guidance. And but remember, guidance will change as well, right? Because the more information we have, we're going to change it. But right right now, I think you know, you as somebody with um, family members with type one diabetes are 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 going to be the most uh, probably are going to be at the forefront because you have you know the interest of your family. Uh, to to uh, to drive you 
to to learn more. I have to say, and, and you may be aware that most um, autoantibodies um, are are um, developed during the early uh, early before the age of five, for example, and mm-hmm. and that's borne out with your uh, daughter that developed it at age two. Right. So the farther out you go, you know, I think um, there may be um, potentially. Um, a window there that there's uh, less of a risk. It's never zero, of course, uh, and that's why, as I mentioned in the ISPAD guideline, guidelines for general population screening, the the uh, the uh, most uh, uh, predictive uh, period is in the first uh, six years at age two and eight, at age six, right? Right to try and, and find. Uh, these children who, who who may be at risk for developing. Can I ask? Uh, T1D. And maybe you don't know, but why is that? Why are those ages and that range the most predictive? Because historically, that's when T1D autoantibodies um, occur in this population. Okay. This is historical data that has been generated by people, even not here in the U.S., but people in in Europe. In Germany, in Finland, people have been doing routine screening and understanding the uh, kinetics or the the profile of these antibodies. They they seem to appear in the early part of life, and they will manifest themselves. That's why people, the most uh, common uh, age group for the onset of type 1 diabetes between 10 and 14. So these antibodies occur early in life, and then it takes time for you to uh, to manifest the disease because... You know the beta cell function uh, starts out normal and then uh, decreases over time. Are there people who have these antibodies and will never develop type one? So, if you if you look at this, and these are published data. Um, for example, Dr. Insel published uh, some of this um, autoantibody um, historical data that if you have only one. Uh, your risk uh, is lower than somebody who has at least two or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is possible that somebody who has a single autoantibody uh, may not develop diabetes at all. But you, 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 it's upon this individual to keep following whether it it um, will increase over time. Yeah, but if you have two or more, it's very likely going to happen. If you have two or more, it's it's almost 100% lifetime risk. That's correct. And when you're at stage two, you know, your your risk um, is uh, 75% at five years. And these antibodies, there's nothing, I, I know this is a little more like kind of touchy-feely, but there's nothing a person could have done to stop this from happening. Is that correct? There is nothing a person could have done to stop this from happening. Exactly. Most likely there's a genetic risk that we, we, we can't erase from our genes, correct? And in uh, a trigger uh, incites it, and uh, we need to go about our our lives, and we don't know what those triggers are. Some some people think they are viral triggers, uh, and it's you know, and that's something that we encounter day in and day out. Um, yeah. So, I as as you said, there's nothing an individual can do to ever avoid ever uh, developing T1D, but there is something you can do. If you have two autoantibodies and dyslipidemia right now, um, and this as, is as we talk about, 
And, and this this is the only thing that you can do right now. Am I correct? Like FDA approved T-Zealed Zit, is that correct? T-Zealed right now is the only drug approved for stage two uh, type 1 diabetes. But as you might imagine, there's a lot of other treatments and immune modulators that are being tested. Uh, and we hope that they will be uh, coming as well uh, in the future. Yeah. Because like any disease, you need an armamentarium of treatment to be available uh, for patients. Uh, when Francisco was on, he spoke about uh, inoculating people against Coxsackie virus. And I thought that was, that my daughter had Coxsackie right before she was diagnosed. So obviously mm. that hit me um, pretty hard. But um, just the idea of there's this common virus that children get and if you have these antibodies, it could push you into type one. And just to give you one more chance not to be in that situation, maybe for a little longer. You know, I, I, I do wonder if my daughter doesn't get Coxsackie, is it just the next virus that gets her? Or could she have been diagnosed as a teen or longer? Like, you know, it's really, um, obviously no one knows, but it's interesting to think about alternative ways that really don't have anything to specifically do with type 1 diabetes to avoid type 1. I just thought yeah. that was really interesting. If, if you will give me two minutes, this is really why I joined um, Prevention back in 2017. I was very intrigued with the concept of, of, of a vaccine to prevent type 1 diabetes. And uh, and so uh, it is a very interesting concept. This, this, uh, you know, a lot of data suggesting that, that this, it is an important trigger type 1 diabetes and you know we have a lot of um, ways that we're going to to study and intervene in this disease from you know people with um, stage 3 stage 2 stage 1 and even before that with potentially this vaccine and I know you're going to ask this you know potentially people with long-standing type 1 diabetes how we can you know with with a beta cell replacement islet cell replacement uh, could be could be in the future Maybe that's even a great place for pediatricians. Like if, if a child has Coxsackie, which is colloquially known as hand foot mouth disease, if they had that, maybe that would be a great reason to, to do a, a screening. You know, I, I wonder but, if there's a way to get into that idea, but I'm sorry. Yeah, but potentially, I mean, I, ideally if we could vaccinate people early on, so they already have the protective antibodies. Uh, then, then um, this avoidance thing might might be less of an issue. But it is a very fascinating, you know, um, situation to try and understand how how we could uh, deal with with these external triggers and yeah. how we we might avoid certain certain diseases. A lot of there's some diseases that have viral um, implications. So it is a it is a very um, interesting field. I would have. I would say. Right. Okay. I'm going to try to use my last 20 minutes with you here. Kind <laughs> okay. of, I won't get so uh, thoughtful. I'll just answer the questions and let you answer them. Are there any clinical trials that are still happening? And if so, for what ages? Right. So I think we already talked about the um, study in stage three. That's the PROTECT study. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll um, hopefully have a readout by uh, the second half of this year. The other study that's ongoing is what we call a the TN10 extension, and these are people in the original um, TN10 trial that if they uh, develop stage three clinical disease, 
they are eligible to enroll in the study to receive uh, a course of the Plesimab. Um, we also are planning to start a study in stage two patients in younger than age uh, eight. Uh, this is actually a uh, what we call a post-marketing uh, requirement, and we would have done it even if the FDA didn't ask us because there's such such a a, a need for for younger people. Uh, to be able to delay the onset of, of um, clinical disease. As you know, if you develop type 1 diabetes for the age of 10, uh, there are studies that suggest that the, the long-term survivorship is, is decreased. So we need to be able to intervene at, at the younger ages. Is there any thought that you might be able to use the drug on recently diagnosed people who are already on insulin? So that is that's the premise of the Protect study, really. Okay. okay. These are people who are newly diagnosed, and some of them have already started insulin, and so that's what we're going to uh, to be uh, testing. That's what we are testing, and hopefully, uh, see the results again by the end of this year. Are all of the ongoing trials double blind? Are some people receiving a placebo? So the Protect study is a double blind study. Yeah, it's a two uh, two to one randomization, which means that of every three people who who entered the study, two received active and one received um, the placebo. Our TN10 extension is an open label and everybody gets active drug. That's and in our pediatric study that we're going to start very soon, everybody will get, a, get an active drug. I find that encouraging. Um, are there any trials planned for people who have had type one for some time? So I think what you're referring to potentially is um, uh, beta cell replacement. Right. Is correct? that is that because, something else the company's looking at? Oh, you may or may not know this, but the plizumab was tested in cadaveric islet transplantation uh, in, in the early days of, of, of uh, clinical development and um, showed some, some uh, promising data back then of people becoming free of, of supplemental insulin. So... <clears throat> We would be interested in looking at the plasmab uh, in the setting of uh, of longstanding uh, type one diabetes in the, in the setting of replacing uh, uh, beta cells. Absolutely. This is out of left field, but do you think the drug has any place with transplant patients, people who get new pancreases, but oftentimes have a reoccurrence of type one? That's a good question. I was hoping you were thinking whether it would be of benefit in transplantation in general. And, and that's really how I, I got to, to this drug because of my transplant background. Um, you know, it's interesting because the drug, as we know it, is, is you know, is intervening in the autoimmune um, side of, of type 1 diabetes. And it's possible that in the setting of, of, um, of the beta cell transplant, it's looking at both the autoimmune as well as what we call the alloimmune, which means that you're, you know, it's somebody coming from somebody or uh, somebody else. So you're, you're trying to to protect uh, the islets from two types of immune attack. But yes, I I think those are things that we we need to you know we're very curious in studying um, if um, if and when we get funding to do that kind of um, interesting work. I think uh, a blend of how well you understand this and how intelligent you seem, plus the like very calm nature of your voice. When you told me it was a good uh, question, I was very proud of myself. 
I felt silly for a minute. I was like a child. I was like, oh, it was a good question. Excellent. <laughs> no, you have you have great. You know, inquisitive minds are are so special. You cannot not be inquisitive, right? No, no, especially around all this. This you would consider this the the dawning of a of a new era, right? Like this is this oh, is kind of cutting edge stuff, right? Uh, you know. Well, the drug has been in development for, development for a long time, Scott, right? Over 20 years. But, I mean, given the fact that the only thing available really for patients with type 1 diabetes is insulin, which replaces a very, very important thing that people don't have. But now you have a treatment that actually intervenes at the, at the core of the, of the disease, mm-hmm. uh, the, the immune attack, um, on, on the insulin producing cells in the pancreas. I think it's, it's, it's novel. It's, um, you know, we think that this is a kind of drug that modifies the disease. And I'm frankly, it's about time, right? Because all other immune-based diseases um, have had their share of, of very, very important drugs. You know, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, um, psoriasis. Um, and so I think, you know, while we are very, very... What, what can what can I describe? How can I describe the feeling? So happy and proud, you know. I think we just opened the door. I think that's the most important thing. I know this because I come from a transplant background. A lot of diseases require more than one treatment, potentially, or you know, or a different um, another type. In case one, the first type is not suitable for this individual, we have to have a uh, options. In, in, in a armamentarium, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. to help patients. Is there a hope in your heart, at least, that what you learn here will bleed into other ways of treating people for other things? Like I think of something sim- like you would think is simple, but um, hives, for example. There are some people who get hives, and there's no reason for it. And just to it, very recently, right, there's been two drugs out that, that impact that. And I'm wondering, like, what, do you think you'll... Like, is this a shift in in the way people are thinking about immune issues? And and do you think it can, like, I guess, do you think the the success can start to replicate on itself and fold over and over? Or do you think it'll be 20 more years before we hear something else? That's a so big let's, question. So let's break that question in a couple of ways. Yeah. You know, the drug um, binds to receptors, a specific receptor in T-cells. And so there are a lot of other diseases that are T-cell mediated, right? So it's not just not just type 1 diabetes. And so it's possible, although we don't have data for these, that other immunity diseases could be could benefit from a treatment like like teplizumab or other T-cell directed treatments. Um, you know, you name them. There's uh, multiple sclerosis, even psoriasis celiac disease you know so many of these things uh, are, are potential targets for a drug like teplizumab or other t-cell mediated diseases mm-hmm. now for type 1 diabetes i think you know i think we've opened the door um for others to to not only see that they, they could be successful talking about the other drug developers um who may have um, focused on other other diseases that are easier to treat or have more people to treat. Um, but this is a very important disease. And once you've opened the door, there's a way. I, I think it's it's going to be um, 
we may be the first, but we're not going to be the last. Yeah. Does gut health fold into that idea somehow? Or am I connecting two things that don't connect? Into- you mean is there a relationship between between gut microbes and and um, and immune di- and immune diseases? Is yeah. that where you get it? Yeah, at? yeah. I, I'm sh- I'm sure there there is. There's a, there's a lot of literature out there about the mi- microbiome and how they influence the immune system. And there's I'm sure there's a gut talk. Yeah. Um, but that's probably as far as I'm going to discuss. No. Although, I'm course, stopping right now. That that's fine. Okay, so I have um, some last questions here that are mainly from listeners. So they're going to fall under the category of, you know, I know you you need to be careful that not to say anything that's not true. Um, so I want to be clear, these things are not approved or they'd be completely off-label if they were, but they're still questions people ask. So um, the first one is, can it help people who do not have any of the genetic markers, so no autoantibodies, nor have any family history, yet are currently being treated with insulin and diagnosed with type 1? Do you see a value for that person? You know, I was, um, that's a very, that's an interesting question. Of course, you know, we don't subscribe or, or recommend any usage outside of our label. But, you know, when, when those types of individuals who do not have autoantibodies, um, and, and these are, you know, mentioned also in, in guidelines called idiopathic, um, type one diabetes who don't make insulin, but it's not immune based. You know, we are, we studied people with immune based disease, right? Autoantibodies. Uh, and, and we've got to learn, you know, do more research on these individuals. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to tell, um, you know, what, what the response would be. But if it's not immune based, it's, you know, it's, it's, this is an immune modulator. So you can imagine it's probably not, uh, the, I don't think they're potentially the right, right type of treatment. Okay. So then here's a question. It seems like, would would follow some sort of common sense, but then not be uh, probably have no basis in reality. But I saw this one a lot. Like if the infusions are holding in people's minds, holding off the development of full blown type one diabetes, why not just continue to give them? Wouldn't that prevent it altogether? Indeed, same question in our minds. Um, although we don't have any data, uh, we're also keen in trying to understand whether additional courses of treatment could. Um, you know, make the delay uh, even longer. So it, it, it's 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 uh, an important question that we also want to get additional data. Okay. Um, will there be any off-label use of the drug for phase one patients? Again, we don't subscribe to or promote the use of of diesel uh, for those patients, but we also know we can't control clinicians and doctors. Um, so it. it we certainly don't have data on stage one patients, and uh, uh, it would be something that we would we would uh, consider doing additional studies in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I, I need, now I need you to quit your job and come back on so I can ask you the question again. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, here's a, a fairly long one, but is there any research in patients who did not have antibodies but have? Uh, dysglycemic episodes, like direct family history of T1 and borderline A1C. So the, it goes on to say that my understanding is that all T1D stages have antibody requirements, but a small segment of T1s are diagnosed without antibodies. Yes, I think as we alluded to before, I mean, we're talking about classic type 1 diabetes, autoimmune-based 
with with uh, autoantibody um, development. And so people who don't have autoantibodies may fall into this rare idiopathic type of diabetes, and that is not um, patients that we studied in our trials. Okay. Uh, so here's a question. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have? I think probably the most important thing, and maybe we can reiterate it, is that how how you, your audience, and the village of other people who got us to this stage really need to to find a way to promote, enhance, um, evolve the screening, because not only not only for for our drug, I mean, <clears throat> you know, to delay the onset of of, of uh, clinical disease, but to prevent diabetic ketoacidosis, which could have long-lasting effects for people, um, to be able to prepare how, you know, how to use insulin in the future, and potentially to continue to find patients so we can continue to do studies to be able to find new drugs are going to be critical. The other thing about about the delay, right now we say, okay, people, you know, I believe and you believe that two years is an important amount of time to be able to have freedom from insulin. Mm-hmm. But but consider this, in two years time, there could be other things that we are that we have available to us that can continue potentially indefinitely to help us delay this disease. So um, again, it may not be the, it may not be T-cell, it could be something, some other combination or some new new treatment. So we, we just have to be looking at it in that from that perspective. Do we need researchers to hear this and to try to dream about what they could try with the drug as well? Or is that something that the company does internally and that's the only way it happens? That's not the only way it happens. We we are I'm hoping that you know that we're we listen. Uh and we're a type of company that, that uh lives on collaboration. And so we we don't necessarily have all the brain power in in, in within the company and we definitely um, you know, need to to benefit from the uh, you know additional innovative thinking of other individuals, and and hopefully it's not just drug companies, it's, it's academic investigators, it's and even some patients may have some great ideas. So mm-hmm. no, we we're happy to to listen to recommendations uh, and to see what's the best way to uh, continue to improve treatment. Is there any wondering in your head if? somebody who gets the the full course, could they have benefits that they're not aware of? Um, as an example, like, what if I'm going to get Hashimoto's? Is there a world where, I mean, Hashimoto's, right? It's my immune system attacking my thyroid. So mm-hmm. is is there a world where TZL helps with that as well? Again, if, if you have a T-cell mediated disease, uh, and this is a T-cell modulator, um, it's possible that that um, there could be a benefit, but we don't have any data. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, for example, a lot, um, some T1Ds have uh, celiac as well. So that would be a very interesting um, place to take to take and study T-cell or Tuzumab in the future. Does the drug have a, a half-life? Is there a time it's... Like so, I don't understand the the monoclonal antibodies completely. So, is it gone at some point, or is it a modification? And so, then its impact is always with me. So, two things: there's the blood levels of the drug. 
um, and the half-life is about four days. And we say that between five and six half-lives, so 20 to 24 days, uh, you should not be able to detect any more teplizumab in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one. Now, then we talk about the what we call the pharmacodynamic effect of the drug, which means um, did it do something to be able to have a more durable effect? And and that's probably what we're seeing, right? Because we only gave the drug 14 days and we have this delay in the onset of the disease that we, we see with the trial. And so those um, changes that we are, that we are, and they are described in our label of um, the drug having what, what, what's called a partial agonistic effect and increasing the amount of what we call regulatory T cells. These are cells that help dampen down an angry immune system and an increase in what's called the exhausted T cells um, are, are probably um, changes uh, that are helping in the um, in the delay in the onset of type 1 diabetes. Okay. I have a couple quick ones I'm going to try to get through. I don't know how quick they're going to be. Let me just do this first. People wanted me to say thank you. So I'm going to get that out of the way so I don't forget at the end. Um, Are you looking for approval in other countries like Australia, Canada, et cetera? So right now we haven't formally um, gone into any other uh, country aside from the U.S. But yes, we have keen interest in in, um, being able to uh, make this available for other patients around the world. Mm -hmm. Then my last question is this, and I don't know what I'm saying. This person said, amino acids 234 and 235, <laughs> who came up with that idea and can they adopt me? <laughs> so. so the um, if you might remember, Jeff Bluestone actually took a um, an earlier uh, version, if you would, of this anti-CD3 molecule. And um, that molecule was modified in the the amino acids were modified in this location uh, as you mentioned and what happened is that it decreased the um the um, activation that that the original molecule um was doing an, an unwanted activation so that's the genesis of this question and yes indeed it's it's what made the plizumab what what it is today wow I tried to make you laugh three times, but the words amino acids got you. I think this says a lot about who you are, Lenny. <laughs> I tried to be ridiculous twice, and you were like, I'm not falling for that. Then... <laughs> You're doing a great job, though. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can I ask you one more? Just as going out the door, it's just a question sure. from a person that said that they saved their child's cord blood. Uh, they are a type 1 diabetic. The children aren't, and they just want to know if you think that there might be any value from that in the future um, for cures or treatments. So I'm, I'm imagine that they're thinking about um, uh, using those cells potentially for um, like beta cell replacement. You know, there are other learned and you know and experienced people uh, in in that field. And it's a very important new era because we're going to bookend this disease. We're going to prevent it from the beginning and we're going to treat people with longstanding. In my mind, I think that's where the field is going to go. And these um, beta cell replacements, whether they're autologous, meaning they come from somebody else, 
or uh, I'm sorry, autologous meaning coming from yourself or or allogeneic, which is coming from somebody else. These are going to be important um, research that we're doing. Uh, and, you know, there are some companies, and I'm not going to mention them, that are at the forefront of, uh, of beta cell replacement. And I think those are probably the right companies to go to and, and explore what types of stem cells are going to be appropriate for future treatment. Okay. Thank you. Well, I feel like it goes without saying, but you can come back anytime and talk about whatever you want to, because this was cool. I want to thank Lenny and, of course, Prevention Bio for coming on the show today. Another terrific episode with them. And I'd also like to thank Omnipod, makers of the Omnipod Dash and the Omnipod 5, and remind you to go to omnipod.com forward slash juicebox to get started today. Get that Omnipod 5 or the Dash. It's up to you. And are you ready to sleep on some seriously nice sheets? Put on some comfy, comfy snuggles? Do it at CozyEarth.com. And don't forget to use that checkout code, Juicebox, to save, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, 35%. That's 35 cents of every dollar. It's insane. I don't know. I don't even know why you're still here. I'm going to go get some pajamas right now. I hope you enjoyed this. I know I did. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juice Box Podcast. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please find a way to share it with someone. Uh, an email, a text message, graffiti on a wall. Um, you know, I shouldn't say dude, don't graffiti on the wall, but you could put like a high up a sign, right? It's like, just, a, I don't know, what would the sign say? Now. That's probably a waste of time. Just tell people that you know who you think will like the show. I think that's maybe the best way to spread the word. I think, yeah, hanging signs would probably take too long.